어디 가서 비누 부대 가져와. 아니 산장을 어떻게 보고 이러는 거야? 전부도 이상하지 않니? 시바지가 다르잖아. episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John, and with me as always, my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, still doing decorating uh, and my day job. Still gardening? Yep. Well, not much gardening this week, but mostly like installing laminate floor, but that's over. Cool. Uh, all right. So today we'll continue our coverage of 90s Asian cinema as we've been doing for all of season two. With Kim Ji-woon's South Korean directorial debut, the 1998 film The Quiet Family. But before we get into that, uh, we have our media consumption section. So, Jason, what have you been uh, watching or reading the last few couple of weeks? Oh, with the approach of summer, I find it hard to sit down and read anything. So I've been watching a lot of films. Um, I've watched 15 um, since the last time we spoke. Uh, 10 of them were Stephen Chow films. And okay. the others were a mix of Western films and um, The Quiet Family and The Happiness of the Katakuris for this podcast. So uh, of the Stephen Chow films that I watched, um, they were uh, Love on Delivery. Uh, the highlights were Love on Delivery and The God of Cookery and um, When Fortune Smiles, which was um, like a, a Jackie Chan style action comedy romp. Just uh, imagine it had a bit more risque humor in it. I see, I see. Other filmic highlights, apart from The Quiet Family, uh, from Beijing with Love. And uh, yeah, The God of Cookery has probably emerged as my favorite Stephen Chow film of the ones that I've watched. I really enjoyed it. It is one of the funniest. 
Um, yeah, there's a, <laughs> this, this belonged to the last episode, but, uh, the, the scene with the, the golden skinned monks, the couple of scenes that he spends with them are just, Oh, is it the 15 brass men? So, something like that. Yeah. Go, I said golden, but yeah, they're brass or, or bronze or whatever. It's like a parody on the 15 bronze monks, like that old martial arts movie. Yeah. 15. Yeah. Yeah. But they just, how they just beat him senseless. For yeah. almost no reason, and then they'll do you know like the thirteen of them will just kicking on the ground, and the other two will just do acrobatics in front of the camera. And they're using folding chairs as well. It's like wrestling. Yeah, and yeah they... it, it it is pretty funny. Yeah, it is it is a an in, insanely funny film. Yeah, and Karen Mock singing that wonderful song about loyalty. She's so different in that film that I initially did not realize it was her that it was that was the female lead in that film. I, I saw your tweet and I that's a tweet and that's when I said, Oh, is this really true? That's great makeup. That's Oscar worthy makeup. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so anything else? Uh like uh Mississippi Masala, uh a British American co production um that stars Denzel Washington and uh I think it's Anita Chowdhury, but um it's about a group of Asian people who have been um, uh, exiled from Uganda, who've settled in the UK and then eventually end up settling in Mississippi. And there's a, a, a relationship drama that emerges between Denzel Washington's black character and one of the uh, Indian exiles. Um, I thought it was quite uh, interesting, uh, erotic, and um, yeah, a really interesting frame on a bit of world history that not many people might know about. That was that happened when Idi Amin took over um, Uganda in the seventies. Okay. Yeah, and I tried watching Psychopath season three, but I keep falling asleep around nine thirty, so I get halfway through an episode and then have to give up. From what I've heard, it's good, and I'd really like to get into it, but I just keep falling asleep. And it's not because the show is boring; it's just because I'm tired. Uh, all right. So, anything else? Uh, that's it on my end. Okay. So, uh, for my uh, media consumption, I also watched a bunch of Stephen Chow films. It was just, the urge was just uh, irresistible after our last episode. As uh, perhaps the listeners could tell how excited, I don't know, at least I was about talking. Even even though Out of the Dark is probably not his best film, it was still a very, a very enjoyable experience to reminisce and talk about that film. So I couldn't help but watch a bunch of them, and and not not so many films. I think I watched two or three films. I, I I rewatched parts of Out of the Dark, and I just watch endless clips on YouTube. Pretty much any clip on YouTube that I could find of his films, I I, I watched it uh, because uh, it was just it's just so funny. The other thing that I did watch was uh, after you mentioned it last time that it was showing it was going to stream on um, the the Japan Society website. I rented the real thing and watched it. Uh, before that, I also rented Harmonium and watched that because I hadn't seen it. I had seen Koji Fukada's A Girl Missing, uh, and I reviewed that for um, V Cinema. And I, I, I was planning to see Harmonium for a long time because that's sort of the film. I, I don't know if that was his first film or the film that made him famous, uh, but I was planning to. So I thought, this is, this is a good opportunity to watch it before I actually dive into the real thing so I have proper context. So I did watch it. I, I really thought Harmonium was pretty fantastic. Uh, the real thing, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. I do not, I did not enjoy the ending so much. 
Uh, and when I say the ending, I mean the sort of the final arc of the show, the the last two or three episodes. It feels like everything just restarts, and then there's you know for just the sake of adding an extra hurdle to the conclusion, it it not it doesn't make it a bad TV series by any means. But it I, I think I thought it could have ended in a much much better note than it did. But other than that, I thought it was a f- fantastic series. I I there's a lot of misconceptions that I had about the real thing that kind of that I, I'm not sure where they came from but they were all uh sort of dismantled after by the end of the first episode for one thing i i thought this would have been one of those because he is a primarily a feature film director so at first i was worried that oh okay so this is just a long movie that they've arbitrarily divided into series into a series for whatever reason but it turned out not to be the case i thought it was very well structured for a series yeah, and the other thing is just from how it started and from just reading the synopsis, I thought this would have would have been sort of it, it seemed to be heading in a direction of a more of a rom com type of story, which I'm generally not a fan of, especially well not not I enjoy rom coms as but as much as anybody, but Japanese rom coms are not my thing. Uh sorry to everyone who enjoys them. I'm not I'm not making an objective case here, it's just it's not it's it's not something that I particularly enjoy, but this turned out to be not at all the case. It was a very mature love story with a lot of other um other elements to it and I think like all of his other films or at least the other two that I've seen like Harmonium and a Girl Missing, there seems to be this uh very subtle uh or or very um subversive commentary on on the Japanese traditions and norms that was very prominent in Harmonium and Girl Missing, and here was somewhat differently displayed. But I thought I thought that was still at the core of the themes in uh, the this series, which I think I I quite appreciate the way that he does it. Yeah, I, I yeah, um, I think I've seen about six of his films, starting with one of his earliest. So he's made. So Harmonium was not his first film. No, uh, Human. Uh, I. I'm sh- he must have made films before this, but the earliest one I've seen is Human Comedy in Tokyo. Okay. But was I correct in, in speculating that Harmonium was the one that kind of made him famous? Uh, he, he was getting press with Au Revoir Let back in 2014. Um, they were getting screened, or it was getting screened around the world, but Harmonium was sort of like his breakthrough because it, I I think it won um, the Uncertain Regard Prize in uh, at Cannes Film Festival, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and it actually got a much wider release than his previous films. His other films, like uh, A Girl Missing, um, since then A Girl Missing have uh, also gone on to festivals and won awards. And Hospitality uh, has played at different festivals around the world. With regards to Harmonium, like I actually felt the sort of switching of oh spoiler warning actually thought the switching of perspective for the series was important in reversing sort of like gender roles and giving more agency to ukiyo's character which plays into are you talking about harmonium or the real thing now oh the real thing okay which plays into what you said about subverting sort of Japanese um, traditions. Yeah, yes. And I, I didn't mind the switching of perspectives. Um, When I was saying that I wasn't happy with the ending, I meant, you know, how it felt like the uh, separation of the, and I, I'm, I'll forget the names of the two characters. What was the? Tsuji and Ukiyo. Ukiyo. Her decision to go back to her boyfriend 
to her old boyfriend who was brought into the series almost out of nowhere. He's mentioned in the beginning, but then he just makes an introduction at like episode eight uh, out of nowhere. And then she goes back to him. And then five minutes later, she says, oh, actually, you know what? This is not what I want. I don't know. And I understand this was adapted in a manga. So perhaps manga had more time to kind of ease out that transition. But in a series form, it felt too abrupt and too arbitrary. So I'm not so much disappointed with the the content itself, but maybe with how abrupt it, it was done and how quickly the allegiances of the main female character uh, was switched uh, switched in the series that I just didn't it didn't quite do it for me I thought I thought it, maybe it should have done a little bit it should have happened a little bit earlier in the series and given the female character more than just one final episode one you know not even an episode a scene to literally change her mind and realize that uh, she was indeed in love with Suji mm. uh, but I did I did like the very ending because I think it does kind of underscore the themes of this film and, and not but also the characterization where and again, spoiler alert, so close your ears if you don't listen to this, but the series, the very last episode ends with her telling him that I love you, but he doesn't tell it, doesn't say it back. Mm. And I think that was very, you know, you can interpret that in, a, in a, a number of ways. You can interpret that as something personal about his character, but you can interpret that something about maybe the, the overall repression of the culture and the, the supposed, you know, expectations of a traditional male and female relationships in Japan. I don't know. It was a fascinating way to end the the final episode. Yeah, and it totally mirrors the first episode in their meeting. Absolutely, there was the, there, there was a lot of mirroring and there was a lot of repetition, which I thought was brilliant in the throughout the series. And uh, you know, things that one character does to another, then another character does to them, and so forth. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I can see why you would um, have that sort of reading that it could be a romantic comedy. Because some of the situations are so absurd. The beginning is a little bit legit. And when I'm saying the beginning, I mean like the f- first half of the first episode kind of give you the, the impression that it might go in that direction. But by the end of the first episode, or even mo- maybe more fairly by the beginning of the second episode, it um, it completely dispels those notions. Because, you know, when he saves her, and this happens very early, so it's not so much a spoiler, but when he saves her at the train station, that does sound like a very typical Asian, South Korean, meet-cute type of, type of premise that a, a rom-com starts. So that's what, that's what I, I was I misled a little bit. But that's, it's may perhaps more to do with my own expectations of how the story might have proceeded versus what's in the story itself. Yeah, because when you look at sort of like um, the responsibility that comes in being in a relationship with another person, whether it's friendship or uh, or maybe just an acquaintance, or you know, when you're discovering love for the first time, when when you consider all aspects of that, it become it became like a horror story for me because like Tsuji was suddenly stuck with this person he doesn't know, and he's drawn by these emotions he's just discovering. In terms of you know trying to subvert or trying to c- comment on the on certain. Japanese traditional structure, uh, I do think the real thing was a little bit less subtle than perhaps Harmonium and uh, A Girl Missing. Uh, but it it was nevertheless, I think, very still very powerful, especially in how, uh, what's her name again, Ukyo, Ukyo. Mm. was treated and how there was sort of this, this uh, very superficial characterization of her by other characters that she's a snake, she is this, she's that. 
Um, that is, you know, I, I thought it was a bit too on the nose, but then again, it is certainly a, an active part of Japanese society that the film was, the series was commenting on, and perhaps it's less subtle nature had to do with maybe, you know, it's it's adapted from a manga, and manga are not necessarily known to be subtle, although there are exceptions, certainly. There there were some archetypes, character archetypes, that you could tell, okay, yeah, this, this is clearly from a manga. There's, you know... Uh, Suji's uh, demeanor was very, very archetypical or archetypal. Well, yeah, the Yakuza guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, the Yakuza guy who starts as bad but turns out to be good and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like this is a sort of uh, Me Too type of drama where by reversing our, or subverting expectations and reversing um, the perspective, you actually question everybody's perspective on um, Ukiyo. And then you question your own uh, acceptance of that perspective. There's rape involved in the story of the scene. And that was even very, uh, that was, you know, a very obvious telltale sign that, yes, this is what this is about. This is what this story is about. And, and that, that immediately kind of reverses your, your opinion of the, of the Ukiyo character. Whereas in the beginning, maybe perhaps you do think that, okay, this is going to go in more, uh, in a more traditional route, and Yukio will be revealed to be truly a devil woman that brings on the destruction of man or whatever. But it is—that's the—that's the point. Because I mean, that is a not not an uh, unprecedented, you know, plot direction that uh, Asian media ha- have gone into, or you know, not to put Asians in the spot. I mean, all over the world, but uh, but that's the point where you kind of begin to to really see, and that's slowly where the the, the series also shifts perspective and gives us a little bit more of the story from Ukiyo's point of view. And I think after that, it's also the first scenes where, maybe the episode after that, where we actually have Ukiyo uh, being the point of view of, of the scene where when she uh, is in the apartment with her boy, with her ex-boyfriend that they attempt to kill themselves or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I, I guess perhaps this is elaborated in the manga. I have no idea. But I, partly with my, you know, uh, opinion that things happen too abruptly i did not see much reason or the the manga didn't justify the the manga the tv series did not give enough justification in my opinion or enough explanation to justify ukyo's attraction to the rich guy i get on a on a sort of a meta abstract level that they'll both hurt souls and they both kind of suffer from the same insecurities but i did not think that's enough i felt the if if they were going to go into that direction of of why uh, ukyo might have an initial dilemma to go back to that guy i felt the series should have given us a little bit more of a justification as to why she might be drawn to him yeah i can i see what you where you're coming from with that um is this ukyo's first love in which case um it should be um, expanded upon how difficult a decision is for her to leave him and go back to Tsuji. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If I I wanted to see a little bit more on the difficulty of that decision, because you know, as as far as that that uh, sort of subplot remains in the past, that's okay. Because again, we found out we find out initially we we learn, I believe, that she cheated on her husband. So we kind of. That kind of makes her the bad guy, but then we we learn, and again, spoiler alert, that she was indeed raped, and the husband forced uh, forced himself upon her. Then we kind of said, okay, maybe that's why she was drawn to this other guy. But in that was in the past, whereas why she's all she's still drawn to him now in the present is again, I sort of get it, but I also wish the show had done a little bit more to to uh, elaborate on that dilemma. Yeah. 
I, as as it stands, it's a great series, and um, yeah, I think we would both recommend it to viewers. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm so happy I watched it. As and how long is it streaming for? Uh, oh, I don't know. I I mean, it, it expired for me because it was. I think that if you rent it on uh, on Japan on uh, on Japan Society, it's only you only have it for seven days. Okay. But uh, I I think it's still up there as as of the time we're recording. I don't know by the time the episode comes out if it's still up there, but perhaps we can check and let our listeners know. Oh, it ends on Friday, July 2nd, so if you have the chance to watch it, you have our recommendation. Yeah, it is. And it's for right now it's available. I know that it's available in North America. I don't I don't know that it is available anywhere else through Japan Society. And uh fifteen dollars for 10 episodes yeah which is ends up being uh 20 to 23 something like that minutes per episode so it ends up being quite uh you know it's it's you get a lot of uh show for your money and this is a real cliffhanger show i like you will want to binge this show i there's nothing better than this in terms of cliffhangers than jojo's bizarre adventures uh battle tendency and stardust crusaders yeah, it is. It it is. Like I said, back to my point where I this is not just a long movie arbitrary divided into into twenty minute chunks. This is the 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 structure of each episode is very well done. And yes, most episodes, if not all of them, end with a a sort of a cliffhanger. But it also doesn't feel cheap. It feels like a natural breaks in the story where natural chapters where you you know every chapter ends with a sort of a cliffhanger, and you want to it keeps you wanting to find out what's next. Yeah. Okay. So um, I don't have anything else. So that was our um, media consumption section. And it was a little bit long, but I was excited to talk about the my experience watching the real thing. So next up is news. And we've quite a, we've quite a bit of news uh, this week. Uh, so first we have, and we announced this a few episodes ago that it was coming, but I think it's finally coming. And it's the Human Condition Trilogy Blu-ray from Criterion Collection. And I'll post a link of this um, uh, from uh, on their website exactly of where you can buy it. But I think it's coming out sometime in June. Or in, by the time this episode uh, has uh, released, it will be already out. I don't know if you remember the exact date. I forgot to write it down. Uh, it's released on 8th of June. 8th of June. So it's already, it's already out by the time that we're recording this. Great. If you if you're interested in buying this excellent movie trilogy, which I highly recommend, directed by Masaki Kobayashi from 1959 to 1961, the Human Condition trilogy, and you want to own it on Blu-ray, which I believe will be a 4K Blu-ray, although I'm not exactly sure about that, I'll post the link to it on our show notes. Uh, so the second piece of news that I have here is uh, Hideaki Anno, who produced who d- produced and directed, and I believe maybe perhaps perhaps also wrote Shin Godzilla. Now he's making another movie sort of in the same vein that is called Shin Ultraman. And that's all I know about it. He's not directing this time. He's just producing it. But it's going to be a movie about a live action. I'm pretty sure movie about Ultraman sort of in the same vein as uh, Shin Godzilla. I don't know if you have any more details on this, Jason. No. Uh, all I know is that he's a big fan of uh ultraman um his wife is a manga artist and um she's put out comic strips with him like dressing up in the gear so this is perhaps embarrassing to admit but i know very little about ultraman so would you for my benefit and perhaps the benefit of our listeners that 
may not be familiar with Ultraman, would you give us like a, a one a one or two sentence summary of what Ultraman is? I've never watched Ultraman in my life. Okay. But it is a manga or an anime, or is it both, right? I think it's like um, live action tokusatsu. Or, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Interesting. I thought it was a manga. It could be. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I haven't watched enough to give you a, a firm answer on that. Okay. That's fine. Uh, anyway, so if you're interested, you know, keep keep uh, you know keep your ears open because there will be eventually. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't see any information about at what stage of production this is, but I just know that it is being produced and Hideaki Anno is involved with it. Is it a Netflix production? It might be. I don't know. I don't even remember where I read it. I just saw it. I think it came up on my Facebook feed or something, and I was yeah. jumped at it and thought of adding it to our news notes because it seemed newsworthy. Yeah. Um. So the next... The next, which I might be relevant, might not be relevant to our listener, the Cannes Film Festival is finally happening uh, in July, I believe, after being delayed this year. Mm. And, you know, we obviously have to point out uh, what Asian films, and I was uh, surprised to see that there's in the main competition, there's only one Asian or East Asian film, and that was uh, the Japanese film Drive My Car, directed by Ryosuke Yamaguchi whom I know only as being the co-writer of uh, The Wife of a Spy, which was directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Yeah, Song Kang-ho is serving on the jury this year. Oh um, yeah, that is that is interesting. Of course, they won the... Has, was there another festival between Parasite and now? No, that one was cancelled, but Cannes Film Festival put out a list of all the films they would have screened last year. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I think they do have a history... I think most of the festivals, but especially Cannes, of, of inviting past winners, so the previous year's winners, it's usually the director, but it's not unheard of for it to be the actors. But they do have a history of inviting previous year's winners to the next festival's jury. Um, mm. So so it's not, I'm not surprised that, because Parasite did win the Palme d'Or. Uh, so it's, no, I'm not surprised that Song Kang Ho, I would, I would have expected Bon Joon Ho, but perhaps he wasn't available or he didn't want to do it. Yeah. Like, um, Ryusuke Hamaguchi was at the Cannes Film Festival, I think it was 2018, with um, Asako 1 and 2. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, he was at the Berlin Film Festival. He won an award there uh, earlier this year with Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Uh, he made his breakthrough with Happy Hour, which is like uh, a three to five hour drama about middle-aged women in um, Kobe. So when you say drama, you mean a drama film, because in Japanese context, drama sometimes refers to a TV series. Drama film. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I sat through that at London Film Festival. Uh, I, yeah, it's actually quite realistic. And uh, was, he, was he there? No, he wasn't there. Oh, that's unfortunate. So yeah. Uh, so he's had a good year so far. And um, his selection of cans with Drive My Car, which I think is based on a story by Haruki Murakami. I'm a huge fan of Murakami, so I'd be curious to see that. But I'm also, because you've hyped it quite enough, so I'm, I, would, I also want to eventually get to The Wife of a Spy, uh, but I don't know when, I'll, when it'll be available uh, for reasonably cheap for me to, to actually check out. Yeah. Oh, and I, 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 forgot, I completely forgot about this, but we talked about either last week, or I mean last episode, or... Um, a couple of episodes ago about the Nippon Connection Film Festival, and mm. that finally concluded, and we have a winner, and it's the 
LGBTQ drama His by Rikia Imaizumi, which I know nothing about other than it was it was the winner of this Nippon Connection Festival, and it is dealing with LGBT issues. I don't know if you could uh, if you have any more information on that. So the story concerns um, two guys. Uh, they fell in love in high school on a school trip, and they uh, they were a couple up until their university days when one splits away from the other. So the one goes off to the countryside, and he lives a sort of solitary life, hiding his sexuality. And then his ex-lover comes back into his life, and he's got a daughter in tow, and it seems like they'll restart their relationship. But then there's the daughter's mother to consider as well. Um, it's been playing at various festivals around the world. It was at the Japan Foundation uh, touring film program in the UK earlier this year, so it's screened online uh, quite widely. I haven't actually seen this myself. I watched Imaizumi's last film, um, Over the Town, as part of the Osaka Asian Film Festival. Uh, Imaizumi himself is like a, like a chronicler of coupledom in Japan. He does lots of relationship stories. Um, and uh, I think that was his first LGBTQ story. So, since you're a lot more familiar with Japanese uh, cinema than I am, what's the you know representation uh, of LGBT characters in Japanese film or TV? My intuition tells me it's not very high, but of course, you're the expert. Uh, well, I would not consider myself an expert. Um, well, better, more expert than I am. Let's just put it like that. So. You would have the odd story, like Funeral Parade of Roses. Um, so from the New Wave, you would get different stories. Yeah, but that, that, those were, I, I wouldn't consider them, uh, yeah, I, I love Funeral Parade of the Roses, but it was a very, very niche type of film. I would not con- consider it part of the mainstream, but fair enough. Yeah, and uh, I suppose uh, closer to our time period, um more into the mainstream you'd have you had a uh, Ryosuke Hashiguchi uh director who specialized in uh LGBT dramas such as uh Free Stories of Love and um Hush uh uh which won some awards and toured around the world and in recent years you had a sort of explosion of boys love stories because of i guess commercial um uh, potential uh not just in uh, Japan, but also like in Korea and um, Thailand and uh, Taiwan as well. So there's uh, in East Asia, there's a definitely a, a growing uh, interest and demand for these stories, and they're having the same conversations that we are in the West about representation in films and like uh, positive stories as opposed to negative stories. Whether you can have uh, audacious melodramas. Uh, how it represents um, the uh, LGBTQ community. Um, but there's definitely a blossoming of these stories, especially in the last four, three, four years. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, okay, so what's next? You have, you have a couple, you've written a couple of items here that, uh, that you want to talk about. Yeah, so uh, just to go back to Japan Society, uh, they've got a program called Cinema A Struggle The Films of Kazuo Hara and Sachiko Kobayashi which runs from June 4th to July 2nd and it's available on their virtual cinema uh, there are 8 films programmed and I think they're $10 each but you could get a bundle of them for $20 and some of these films are available to stream in Canada uh, they, they, they're documentarians but uh, they do a lot. Of, uh, they do some staging in their documentaries, so 
uh, it's not like a observational one where there's like limited interaction from the filmmakers. I'm go. I've go- I'm hoping to pl- uh, cover this series, and um, I've interviewed uh, the programmer of the series, um, and I'm going to review as many of the films as possible. So uh, that's online and ready to stream. It's currently going on, and we've got the Udin Far East Film Festival, which is uh, virtual and physical and uh udin went online last year due to coronavirus uh this year it's going to be online again and some of these titles uh are available for audiences around the world to stream and they come from thailand taiwan south korea philippines myanmar malaysia japan indonesia hong kong and china so uh, I've seen a couple of these. Uh, I suppose the one I would wholeheartedly recommend is Ito by Satoki Yokohama, which I mentioned a few episodes back. But you've also got Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, who we were just talking about. And I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at the list, and it looks like there are some um, some notable names here, just based on the directors. I obviously don't haven't seen these films, but uh, Fruit Chan is part of the Hong Kong showing. Uh, Zhang Yimou part of the Chinese showing. I'm looking at the Korean names and I'm not sure I recognize any of these directors. It sounds like they're mostly new directors, which is great because the sort of the new blood out of Korean cinema is very promising from what I've been able to guess. Yeah. There's uh it's it's a there's a rich selection of films. Um one that I I would recommend people watch is Keep Rolling, uh which is about Anne Hui, so a documentary about her life and her career. And that's going to be online worldwide, except for China. And we've mentioned Anne Hui on this podcast many times. Um, I yes. had no idea who she was. I watched this film and I feel like I've got a much better idea of her career and um, like uh, all the films, her impact on, on Hong Kong cinema and what her films specialize in. There's uh, 63 films in total. Yeah, it looks it looks a pretty extensive list. And you said this is a combination of online and in person. Does that mean that some films are available online and some films are only physically shown, or is it uh, certain films are are shown both uh, uh, both online and uh, offline? So I, looking at the list, it seems like a lot of these are online, and yet. Yeah, We've, I'll tweet out the list, and the list will be in the show notes. Um, there are some that are offline only, like uh, Cliff Walkers by I see. Zhang Yimou. So uh, quite a lot of these are going to be online as well, but they'll be restricted to Italy. So with this list, you can find out if you can watch any of these films from the comfort of your own home. Okay, yeah, that's great. I'm looking at some Some of them are online in certain countries only, some, some of them are un- online everywhere except certain countries. And then some of them seem to be online everywhere, and some seem to be offline only. So yeah, it seems to be a very mixed bag of availability. There's quite a bit that are online in Italy only, which is uh, unfortunate. It, I, I, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon that's happening with film festivals, where there's, uh, the shift online has just exploded, especially due, it was it was always going to happen, but it's exploded thanks to COVID-19. Yeah, I'm, which I'm all for. I'm not someone who has the opportunity or the means to travel for all the, the film festivals that I, I, w- I would ideally like to follow. So this is a, sort of a dream come true for me. Uh, it is somewhat 
uh, you know, I'm traditions will eventually die. We know that, but it is a, a you know, a, a sad thing to sort of see the almost fraternal experience of going to a film festival, meeting the people in person and sort of participating in this exclusive, exclusive experience of watching certain films for the first time or, or all that kind of stuff. So I, I do feel a little bit nostalgic for that traditional, even though I've never been able to participate in it. Uh, but otherwise, I think I, I wholeheartedly welcome this this new uh, switch to online uh, showings of festivals. I don't know. I think it'll always be there because people like to meet people in person. Absolutely. I'm not saying it will it will disappear, but it will. There might be some sort of diminishment. It won't. It will never like Cannes or Venice will never. They'll still have because they're the top one. But a lot of these secondary or tertiary film festivals that are smaller, the the, the physical participation may somewhat diminish because it is also costly for them to organize all these things, and cutting costs is always something that is welcome. Yeah. Like a lot of people don't realize that um, film festivals only survive because of government subsidies, <laughs> ticket sales. Um, a lot yeah. of them, yeah. So, like every ticket sale is important, and if you can shift online and dramatically cut costs, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, there's that financial incentive to do it. Okay, so um, unless there's anything else, that was our news section, uh, which is you know our preamble this episode was a little bit longer than usual but i suppose we did have a lot of stuff to talk about uh, but now it is time to move on to our main discussion and that is talking about kim ji woon's directorial debut uh the quiet family released in 1998 so as usual jason would you like to give us a plot summary of the film so the quiet family is a 1998 black comedy horror film directed by kim ji woon as his debut feature with their father having been fired an extended family retreat from Seoul to an old lodge in the surrounding mountains where they collectively renovate the building in the hopes of attracting hikers. Tourists initially fail to materialize, but eventually one does show up, only to be found dead the next day. The family bury him in order to avoid a scandal that could ruin their new business, but the next few guests also die and the family are forced to bury them. Death and burials soon become so common that the family become very adept at burying the bodies, which continue to pile up. Will this family be able to keep the series of horrors quiet anymore? All right. Thank you, Jason. So I would like to start a discussion with when was the first time you saw this film? So uh, I bought the DVD back in the early 2000s when I was in high school. I can't remember why I bought it, um, but uh, for me, it was like a good introduction to South Korean cinema after watching like Shiri and um, uh, it, I found a quiet family, very inventive, energetic, blackly comic um, and the slapstick humor was like really entertaining. So I kept going back for more. Uh, so like uh, rewatching it, I was even more impressed by it. Uh, I published a review of it back in 2012, which uh, goes into some detail about how I felt at the time. Yeah, I saw that, and I I remember you mentioning it that you had imported the the DVD from Korea, uh, or something like that. If I did not misunderstand your your post, and I remember, you know, I just wanted to comment on how far how you know how far the ex export export of Korean media has advanced because I remember when I first sought this film out, and this it was not as early as the early two thousand, but it was you know between somewhere between two thousand eight and two thousand ten maybe 2011, somewhere in that time, where it was, I, I was trying to find it and I couldn't. And there was, uh, the only way to get it was a DVD that was 
I think out of print, so you could only get it secondhand or something. Even though it was not an obscure film by any means, it was it it had some following even outside of Korea. It still was not an easy film to find. Whereas now it's just available on Amazon Prime. At least it was. It is here in North America. I don't know if it is also available on Amazon Prime in the UK. Uh, no, uh, I I don't think it is. I'll have to check. Interesting. But it is, yeah, it is, and there's it was available for rent, for digital rent or purchase in in a couple of other platforms, I think. And I was just you know amazed that when I first wanted to to see this movie, I just couldn't find it. I had I had to struggle to find it, and now it's you know it's just a, a, a click away. So I just wanted to ask you, what was that experience like? If if you do remember it about trying to order a DVD from Korea, if that's what indeed you did. So back in high school, uh, no, it's not available on Amazon Prime. But uh, back in high school, I was ordering um, anime and uh, ancient movies from different catalogs. Um, sort of like uh, a guy in the Isle of Wight, I think, uh, had set up this little um, trading business um, called um, uh, Asian DVD Club, something like that. And I've still got the catalog. I just haven't been able to find it. And uh, the cheapest DVDs were from Hong Kong. And the most expensive DVDs were from Japan and Korea. And so it was always, like, for me, it was always, like, um, a tactical thing. I had a limited amount of money, so I had to spend it wisely. And um, I would get advice from, like, internet forums like Kung Fu Cult Cinema. uh, Or just looking at people's uh, comments or reviews. and. so it was like a, a time of experimentation as well as like branching out into Asian films. I, um, a number of films that I got include, um, Public Enemy, uh, Old Boy, um, Infernal Affairs and The Quiet Family. Uh, after a while, um, Tartan started putting out all of these films. Um, this is when I was entering university about to enter university so i could then just switch back to getting the tartan editions of these films which were much easier to get i don't know if it's the same i'm pretty sure it wasn't bartan but the dvd copy that i had was uh the english subtitles were not particularly great so i don't know if that was also your initial experience with the film dvd copy i got is actually from hong kong I didn't know at the time, but looking at it recently, I looked at the text, and um, I, could, I guess it's Cantonese. And the English subtitles are actually uh, well done. There's some words missing, but uh, due to familiarity of language, I can just put them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, and so with me, so I already kind of hinted as to when I first watched it, but it was uh, it was not certainly not the first Kim Ji Won film. I was already pretty familiar with most of his especially later films and that was part of the reason why I sought this out I wanted to you know there's this great filmmaker you know I want to see his early stuff and I was you know it was hard to get but I was eventually got my hands on both this and the the film that he did next The Foul King which is also maybe perhaps more of a conventional comedy than this than this you know horror comedy type of film but I remember The Quiet Family just I loved it immediately. It was so so unique, so so out of left field. And at the time, of course, I did not know that there was a a remake of of it that was even weirder than what the original. What which is by as I was watching it again for in preparation for this episode, it was actually not as unusual as I remembered it to be. It was a fairly conventional, although still brilliant, you know, horror comedy. 
Uh, and at the time, I did not obviously know a lot about the history of Korea and the sort of the, the subtleties that the film, uh, uh, the social commentary and subtleties that the film contains in its uh, in its plot. But I could still tell that there was something, you know, there was a symbolic and allegorical, to be more precise, layer of the film that it kind of sort of struck me. And I said, yeah, this is, um, there's definitely something there that the filmmaker is trying to kind of allude to that I'm not getting. And I think this was also around the time that I was familiarized with uh, the South Korean dictatorship that went on for most of the Korea's 20th century history. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we're talking about President Park Chung-hee. Park Chung-hee, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. And like... Um... We'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the possible allegorical meanings. But I just wanted to briefly go over uh, Kim Ji-woon's career as a as, as leading up to this. A, but we did talk about Kim Ji-woon a little bit when we when we talked about um, A Bittersweet Life, but it doesn't hurt to, to reiterate. And as, as I believe we mentioned before, he used to be a theater director. And I think, I don't know if you would agree with me, but this film certainly has a, a theatrical quality to it. Not so much in the in the camera movement and the cinematography, which is quite cinematic, but in the story, did you find it that this could have very well been a play and the story had a... Have you... Have you? Uh, there's the last one, Trey film. Is it um, Dogville? Dogville, yes. Where there's like, uh, it's on a stage and it's just got like um, the set chalked out in lines. Yes. There, there's that, that. That's true. There is some similarities between that and... and, uh, and uh, a cool, the quiet family. Well, yeah, I could, I could just, as I was watching this, like, I like Kim Ji Woon's background in theater because he actually um, studied at the theater department, Seoul Institute of the Arts, but dropped out to actually study in the field, he says, and to take on writing screenplays and directing plays himself. Um, but as I was watching this, I, um, I could imagine the actors, um, all on the stage in a sort of dogville style, uh, setup. And um, their chemistry together was just so brilliant. Exactly. Part part of why this film works, it is because of uh, of how well the actors interact with each other, and how you know there's this sort of almost this psychic understanding between the family members, especially like um, to go forward a bit, like you know when uh, the first time that Song Ho is trying to peep into a couple having sex, and it's his uncle that just shows up and like grabs him by the ear away from the door. Uh, there's just, I think you're, you, 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 you called it right as it was, you know, the chemistry between the actors is just so great that it's a big reason why the movie works as well as it does. Yeah. There, there are so many scenes where they're just lounging around the lodge, waiting for something to happen. And it's naturalistic acting. Uh, you feel like they've been around each other for years. Um, exactly. You buy the fact that it is a real family. Yeah. And, um, Although some of the action is exaggerated because it's so rooted in that reality, that's what keeps the interest going. Uh, and just go go back to Kim Ji Woon a little bit. Uh, he's a, he was a theater director up to this point, and this is an anecdote which may or may not be true that I heard from uh, Paul Quinn, who is a noted Korean film critic. That uh, uh, when he talked about this film, he said he tells the story of how Kim Ji Woon's car broke down, and he wanted to make some quick money. To, to repair it so he submitted two scripts to a to a couple of screenplay contests in south korea and this one was one of them and he was so loved by the people in the competition that they essentially gave him free reign to make the movie yeah i read in an interview that um 
he said he went to a small ramen shop and um, he found an advertisement in a magazine um, and he had a week before the deadline to submit some screenplays to a contest and one of them was run by Cine 21 which is like a, a prominent film magazine yeah. at the time and he says that uh, I broken up with my girlfriend of two years so I had a lot of free time so I wrote a screenplay because I wanted to do something productive for the first time and uh, yeah like the screenplay for Cine 21 uh, ended up being picked up by Myung Films uh, a production house and um, they couldn't find a director to actually um, make the film so they gave uh, Kim Ji-Woon their uh, director's chair I suppose you could say yeah and it was, you know, this this was the 90s. So I think, I wonder, looking at the direction of Korean cinema, I'm wondering this, this is why perhaps Korean cinema exploded the way it did in the early 2000s and up to this day, I suppose. Because I'm wondering if that mentality in the mid to late 90s, because we talked about the year before we had Greenfish and, uh, and, um, um, number three, number three. Yeah. Oh my God. It's one of my favorite movies. I can't believe I forgot the name. And uh, so, and then this year we had, you know, The Quiet Family, which was Kim Ji-Woon's sort of brilliant director debut, but we had a couple of other successful movies like Christmas in, Aug Christmas in August and Whispering Corridors, which I have not seen, but it is a very notable, a very popular, uh, the first of a very popular series. So I'm wondering if this is why Korean cinema exploded, because the mentality of the production stud studios at the time was get these young people and give them what they want. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there was bound to be misses. Like there's a lot of movies from the nineties, which some of it I'm, I've seen cause I'm curious and they're just, there's a reason why they're not remembered, but there's some, some movies by the right people that ended up essentially kind of starting this. Some people call the new wave. Some people call it new Korean cinema. Doesn't matter, but essentially sort of revitalized the Korean film industry in a way that it has made it hugely successful today. I've, I've read that like in the 70s and 80s, there was like strict censorship. And um, once like the authoritarian government was removed, um, people in office looked at how Korean cinema was faring and it only had a 16% market share. So they went about relaxing um, censorship laws and um, encouraging like um, investments. And so you, and you had this emergence of a crop of talent in the 90s, uh, I guess companies were just taking a chance on new stories to see what would stick and if they could make money out of it. There's almost this counterintuitive notion that when a, when a film industry is not doing well, that means that also production co costs are fairly low. So I think that with the right mentality, that worked in their favor because, you know, they could take these risks, these risks with a you know, with without spending that much money, considering you know how small production costs were, uh, and you know how you know a, a cast of mostly unknown actors could still do well, because yes, there were stars of Korean, like the 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 lead actor whose name I forget that was in Greenfish and and Number Three, and also he ended up being in Christmas in August, which was one of the biggest years uh, movies of the nineteen ninety eight. Uh, generally, you know, Korean, there weren't that many stars in cinema. There were some TV stars and a few cinema stars, but it was not, you know, by not having a star in their film, by just having maybe perhaps some recognizable actors, but that were good actors that sort of could carry their performances successfully. It was it was a, a low risk, but very high payoff situation 
for the Korean industry at a time that they would have been foolish not to take it. And they made the right move, I think. Yeah. And yeah, like in that environment, directors are free to cast who they want. And the directors are turning to theatre actors and these theatre actors are having long careers and getting recognition around the world. Exactly. And talking about the cast, let's look at the cast of uh, The Quiet Family. There was, you had Song Kang-ho and um, Choi Min-sik who were together in number three. And they were sort of, you know, Song Kang-ho had been in a couple movies before and Choi Min-sik had been in a in a, in a few movies before, but nothing that had made him popular. Number three definitely brought them to the attention. So there were recognizable faces, but there were no mean, you know, audience. There were by no means the big audience drawers that they are today. But, you know, they were recognizable and their talent was, you know, also recognizable as good actors. So they did this and they were brilliant at this, which also made them even further stars, even, or I would say more recognizable. And that stardom was probably cemented with Shiri in the next year. Uh, and, I, and I think that's what Shiri did for the, the Korean cinema. I don't think it was better than a lot of the movies that came either in 99 or 97 or 98, but it kind of elevated the right people to stardom and I think proved that Korean cinema is not only good domestically, but it's also exportable. Um, the, the, so you have Song Kang-ho and Choi Min-sik, but everybody else is pretty much an unknown. The parents look like they would be respectable actors, but they had not. They had very little cinema experience. They were theater actors and TV actors, especially the, the old lady, the mother. She was a, a pretty well-known TV actor, but she had never done, uh, or she had done very either no movies or very few movies before that and the same thing with the father actor mm. i think like probably the least experience were the two young daughters okay um speaking uh just this is a sort of a side but you mentioned how this reminded you a bit of um dogville from Lars von Trier and his connection to theater uh, the quiet family reminded me of have you seen denny boyle's shallow grave uh i know of it it's got ewan mcgregor right Yes, it reminded me a lot of that because Danny Boyle was also a theater director who kind of made his debut with Shallow Grave, which has a eerily similar plot. It's about a, a, a three roommates who are seeking a fourth roommate that ends up dying accidentally. Uh, either I don't remember if it was suicide or if it was just a, an accidental death or something. And now they have to bury the body and not make sure nobody finds the fact that he died on their apartment. Hmm. So it, it's not comedy. It's a very, well, there, there, there's a few comic parts to it, I think, but it was a very, very dark thriller. Uh, but but it, I was just, I thought it was a, a eerily similar situation where two theater directors kind of end up doing very similar films as their first films and then become huge directors afterwards. Yeah. Um, I've never seen Shadow Grave, but, you know, growing up in Britain in the 90s and early 2000s, I was aware of its presence. So I guess I'm going to have to search it out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting film. Of course, he did train spotting right after, which is what people remember him for. Yeah. But anyway, so going back to to the plot of The Quiet Family. So there is, I talked about this allegorical quality about it, and neither of us is an expert in Korea's history, although we both know a little bit, and I did a little bit of research before this episode, perhaps you did too. So did you, how how was that for you? Did you, did it jump out at you? Did you kind of, did you notice it at all? Or did you have to really dig deep into the plot to kind of uh, maybe discover those polit- more political undertones of the of the film? How 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 did you find that aspect of it? So I had no idea about this when I first watched the film, and it wasn't until I actually researched uh, the film and its background for this podcast that it actually 
came out, so to speak. Um, I think it's really well handled, actually, because it makes it makes references uh, to like a previous time period, um, and it, it gives the film a lot of depth, especially uh, like the way the parents handle the situation. If you see them as being uh, like a metaphor for the way the previous generation had allowed themselves to um, work with a dictator. There's a couple of ways you can look at it. There's this little tidbits that are just scattered throughout the film, like this road, this sort of almost this, uh, you know, metaphysical road that is always supposed to be built. And I think they finally get to it in the end, although we never, it, it's never built by the time that that uh that the film ends but it just it is it seems to lead them into more trouble trouble that it's worth because it first the promise of a road leads them to buy the place in the first place then the road doesn't seem to get built and then it leads them to this all this it, it ties them to the corruption with the official that is supposed to be in charge of doing it and then it also risks uh digging up the bodies that they buried throughout the mount the mountain so it is this sort of almost ominous promise of something better, but it actually just leads them to more trouble and trouble and trouble. And I, I guess that could be interpreted into a lot of ways, but but it could, one way that I took it is sort of this modernization, this inevitable modernization will dig up the bodies of the past. Um, another way to interpret it is, you know, this modernization is actually, you know, the modernization that Korea underwent under the dictatorship, because that's one thing that happened. And you know it it comes it comes at a significant cost. You can't just we can't just uproot our traditions without perhaps changing who we are. And that's sort of a familiar theme with uh, uh, the memories of murder that the Green Fish too, of course. Yes, Green Fish number three, but also memories of murder that we talked a little bit about it. Well, yeah, just to give some background on this, is uh, President Park Chung Hee, and uh, in real life, uh, an authoritarian leader whose policies helped spur economic growth in the 70s and 80s but he's also like uh he used safe houses and camps to make people disappear and torture them kill them and all sorts of horrible stuff you know that's where all the bodies were buried and in the film you've got uh a headman of the village who convinces the father to buy the lodge his surname is park so there's that nod to yeah. history and also it takes place in the 90s so it's like the asian financial crisis like all these people going to commit suicide at the lodge and this family actually buying the lodge you can imagine they're all like refugees from this crisis i was a little bit okay so are are you i i think did did they use cell phones at some point in the film i, I cuz that I, I was at some point it made me wonder and i'm pretty sure the film is supposed to set to be the 90s but i wonder if the director's intentionally did not kind of set it in a particular decade decade so like suggesting that the film could be the story in the film might be set earlier i don't know if you got that or if it's just me i i i think have you having said it will make me look for it it sounds like it could be but um i just took it as being set in the 90s um especially with like you get glimpses of the television sets um that's the sort of crt setups that people were using at the t in the 90s yeah well i mean that could also be a, arguably the 80s and uh but you you're the, right you're right it, it is more most likely the 90s but it is there was a couple of points in the film that i'm wondering okay is is he leaving the time place unintentional because is this we are never leave this mountain. So it, we are in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing. The outside world is almost irrelevant to what's going on in this story. So that's kind of made me wonder 
if perhaps Kim Ji-un was intentionally making the time ambiguous to sort of emphasize this universality of of what this family is committing uh, in terms of, you know, the political reality of Korea for many, many years. It just creates like the perfect microcosm for like an allegory of Korea at that time. Like it's an isolated place and you've got these uh, different generations of a family that represent different generations of Korea itself. So the youngest characters are very naive to what the parents are going through. They're also, they're also very apathetic. So so you have naive naivety represented by one daughter and you have apathy represented by the other daughter who doesn't, they, they make the common point who doesn't even really, they look, I gather that they're about the same age, but one of them looks a lot older than the other or, or one of them looks a lot younger than they, she should be or something like that. But there's, you know, that sort of almost universal criticism by Kim Ji-gun about is the new generation building an, enough of a of a basis here to sustain this newfound democracy or are we just going to revert back to our old ways and that's the tension in the film because like the older generation are being coerced by headman park into like committing horrendous crimes for the sake of their economic benefits they're burying the bodies uh, and they're carrying on with like um, all sorts of horrible things and the younger generation are kept at arm's length. They don't know about it until the very like final sequences where they turn against the parents. Yeah, well, in a sense, yes. But it also, I think the film makes the point of saying that the young generation is horrified morally, but is also benefiting from the sins of the older generation. Oh, yeah, there's definitely an ambivalent attitude to this. Yes. And there's speaking, there's like a lot of... Uh, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but there's a lot of, like I said, the tidbits that the film, that the, the the story kind of scatters around. And there's a lot of, every time when the TV is on, or most of times when the TV is on, there's something about North Koreans, right? Yeah. And you might think that it's like wallpaper for the film, but it actually plays into the plot quite well. But President Park maintained his grip on power by hyping up the communist threat. Oh, it's a very real threat, of course, but that's... No, so that that that's exactly yeah. So I guess it's not as much of a stretch as I thought. So that was, and that's just not present in Park. I mean, the the most of Korea's twentieth century development and most of the Western world's development in the twentieth century was this, you know, this, uh, or at least had to consider the threat of communism, the threat of Soviet Russia, yeah, as a very very central part to economic and uh, and humanitarian policy, or pretty much any aspect of of the Western world's development was shaped by this rivalry between capitalism and communism. Well, um, if you are a dictator and the Americans are bankrolling you, of course, <laughs> communism is a huge threat. Absolutely. And, you know, there's this, almost this, this uh, perhaps Kim Ji-woon's ability to understand the complexity of the situation, because let's, let's see first what happens to this family, and then let's try to tie that to what happened in South Korea post the Korean War. war. And, you know, the family's first couple of deaths are perfectly innocent, and their reaction to it is perhaps rush and perhaps immoral, but but very understandable. They 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 their life would be ruined if they let the police in because they would either one they would either be accused of actually killing this person to steal their money, or if they could somehow prove their innocence, the reputation of their a lodge of uh, their lodging cabin would be ruined and they would just 
have to completely abandon their dreams. Their dreams. So th- their reaction is again, maybe you agree with it, maybe not, but it is understandable. But then again, they, as 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 time goes on, as the as the body count piles up, they become desensitized to this va- to this violence, and they almost then kind of seek it out. At the end, they become just so so completely unflinching towards it. And you can make the same case about, you know, Korea at first in the Western world. I mean, Korea's right-wing policies immediately after the Korean War, or maybe even during it, and the uh, the militarization of of uh, South, the South Korean government was understandable given the circumstances of the time, but then it kind of like completely escaped from within the, the realms of the normality and just turned into a fully fledged dictatorship. So I'm wondering if this is this is a real parallel or if it's just something that I'm seeing uh or I'm interpreting in the film. I know I I think it's a, a real parallel. Yeah, so it's it is a case of, you know, even the 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 what's that phrase, the the road to good intention no the, uh, the road to hell is paved with good, good intentions, good intentions yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So the family's intentions initially are good, but they just become they've kind of made their deal with the devil, so to speak. Yeah. And they they're they're just you know, they're just spiraling out of control just like perhaps Korea spiraled out of control in the worst days of dictatorships. And there were, you know, Korea did some really terrible things with they had, you know, you mentioned the safe house and the people disappearing, but th- they, those people were not just disappearing. They were actively tortured for sometimes information and just sometimes to just get them in line. Yeah, and the irony is President Park was killed in one of these Korean CIA houses. Absolutely. And he was he was replaced by successor and then there was another coup immediately after. Yeah. Uh, which continued President Park's policy essentially and in fact in some case even even doubled down on them. And the 80s I I from what I've heard was even worse and that's why eventually led to the the student rebellions that that uh, would democratize the country something like that i'm not i'm not a percent clear on the history of of korea mm. so in, there was um a, a film that i remember seeing and it came out around 2012 called national security and it is a, precisely about the the torture in 1985 about a political activist uh, i think his name was uh, kim guanta and i uh, i strongly recommend watching this film because it's just it's a great film but it's also very brutal and it's also very um eye-opening as to what was going on in Korea during the time. So it was, you know, I think I think Kim Ji-woon is purposely trying to draw, to draw the peril between, you know, the, the right-wing tendencies of, of South and dictator, dictatorial tendencies of South Korea throughout the years. And, you know, the perhaps initially good intention, but eventually dictatorial tendencies of this family. Well, uh, I read an article um, about uh, Kim Ji Woon's uh, quiet family and um, Park Chang Wook's um, joint security area. Uh, and one of the paragraphs is this um, Kim is open about his loathing for President Park's developmental dictatorship, which saw Korea industrialize rapidly at a huge cost. Park's government ravaged the environment and relocated thousands of families for new roads like the Gyeongbu Expressway, while hundreds of his enemies were rounded up and tortured in KCIA safe houses. President Park was later assassinated in one of these very same safe houses. It's no mistake that the sign for the inn, named Misty Villa, is misspelled safe house at the beginning of the movie. As Kim said in an interview, the state makes corpses, the family makes corpses. Yeah, although to, I, I I had to read that I I read something similar, but in the in the copy of the film in the Amazon Prime uh, copy, they completely butchered that joke because they 
they do point out the misspelling, but instead of safe house, they have it as musty villa. Okay. That's... So it's a, a, a joke of a completely different nature. So instead of safe house, and then he corrects it and says Misty Villa, it's musty, and then he corrects it and it's misty. So it looks like something that would make sense in English, for instance, like an, an, a, a logical misspelling, but, uh, uh, but it completely, completely changes the, the, the subtext, which is not that much of a subtext, but it is an important that kind of contextualizes the movie later on. That's uh, yeah. That seems like a big miss. Yeah, exactly. And it's he, that, that's something that he said about uh, American remakes. He said they try to remove, uh, and he talked. Uh, he said this about the remake of his film, A Tale of Two Sisters. But he also was talking about remakes in general. And he says Americans have this bad habit of not translating foreign foreign films, so they make sense to an American audience. But they simply remove the things that they make sense, and they just tie the tie the. Uh, the missing parts just so they make logical sense. And I thought that was a perfect example. They're just, you know, they thought whoever did the subtitles thought that the safe house would not translate. So they just removed it and they just added another uh, part to the joke just so it makes logical sense. But it is completely out of step with the original meaning of what that joke was supposed to be about. Like the film is much richer if you know the original meaning, but even safe house would have an ironic tone to it considering what happens later on in the film exactly oh exactly exactly especially upon a rewatch when you do have a sort of that uh, for uh, for knowledge of what what happens next yeah i i this yeah <laughs> it's so strange but that that actually wasn't translated in my edition my dvd edition so it was something i had to read online no the sign wasn't translated yeah i see i see yeah i think in the original dvd that i had it was translated correctly but i think the amazon if i remember correctly and i think the amazon prime was just did this new thing where they just uh, completely uh, butchered it i mean the rest the rest of it though seemed fine it was just that part i suppose i don't know. yeah you you can speculate that it's a translator who has to meet a certain set of criteria and yeah yeah just leave it at that there's you you did mention though in the in your in your quote from uh that that article about the roads that displaced that displaced a lot of families and there's of course a, a big in in fiction and in cinema throughout the 20th century you know roads are a symbol for modernization just industrialization in a lot of rural communities of the past that's what it was missing and sort of the road passing through is a, a, a sort of a, allows trade to function, allows, you know, especially modern roads, allows, uh, sort of brings a community into the next century. So there's that part. But of course, the, the cost of that is what you mentioned about displacing homes. But the, the, in this one, it doesn't seem to go there exactly. The road is, like I mentioned at the beginning, is, is this alleged bringer of hope, or even though it actually backfires for them in every turn. It's. It seems like a, a, a bit of a white elephant because you don't know what its purpose is for. You can imagine it's like pork barrel politics that it's just bringing jobs into the area and then like things will continue afterwards uh, as they much have before. I mean, you can argue that the, everything the family does, the killings, the burials are done in, you know, waiting for that road. They won't have to do that anymore. You know, the, the lack of a road brings all the weirdos to their their lodge but once the road comes all the normalos the, the normal people will uh will finally go to there even though you know it's they they don't even realize that things have just gotten so out of control that they are that's not the problem anymore they are the problem 
Yeah. It's a mirage that keeps them going. Uh, absolutely. And then we have, I don't know if you had anything more to add about the sort of the, the, the political aspects of the film. And the, other than like the way it plays, um, I, I really enjoyed the way that it's the North Korean spies, uh, news reports about them are interspersed in the stories. And then it culminates in like this brilliant, um, sort of, um, reversal for one character, uh, a shock death. Because he's also he, he's the, the only one connected to the lodge that actually turns out to be a North Korean spy that probably defected to the South and turned assassin. Or it could be a, a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> he's just been caught up in it. That's also possible because we see every time, like it almost happens on cue after every sort of major death in the lodge, then there is a scene with them watching TV and hearing about dead North Korean spies found somewhere. Uh, it could be that same mountain, could be somewhere else, I don't remember. But it's almost, could almost make the connection that the family is just killing people indiscriminately and, and then just, uh, you know, justifying it as killing North Korean spies, mm. which is the pretext that, it, as we already mentioned, the old dictatorship used. And it also adds to the sense that this is a, a violent world they're in. So, like, what they're doing isn't necessarily such a, a, hum, a humongous leap into the unknown. It's just various shades of gray. Yeah. So tied to that and tied to, you know, both the political interpretation, but also the, you know, the dysfunctional family interpretation, the, sort of the purely slapstick comedy aspect of this film. What do you make of the ending? The And I'm talking about the f final scene where they have dinner together, because there's quite a few things that don't quite... I mean, I love the ending, but there's a few things that are not quite logical there. Much, actually, much like the ending in A Bittersweet Life, I would argue. So, yeah, I guess, we, are we starting with the fire in the barn? So, yes, the fire in the barn, and then the fact that a cop died and somehow none of them is arrested. Yeah, like the father's liberally doused the barn with um, uh, petrol or... Oh, some flammable liquid. He's got all the bodies piled up there, um, and it goes up in a conflagration, and he's covered himself in flames, and you see him go up in flames. And the mother, too, uh, yeah, I think. The mother's stuck in a barn with him, and then in the final scene, they actually reappear. So it doesn't show you um, how they escaped, but I assume that they just did escape, and um, like the final scene is real, that they've gathered for a moment of peace, uh, like no more trouble now we've got rid of all the bodies they've all been burned and then somebody arrives at the door and it's kind of like uh they want to remain quiet like that's the gag like the irony at the end that they're being drawn into the, into a, uh, another wild plot like throughout the film they're trying to turn trying to turn a corner but it just keeps getting worse and worse they're, they're telling the audience to be quiet though that's 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 a i feel like an important aspect of that scene they're looking at the camera and they're telling the audience to be quiet. And I'm, and I'm often wondering if that's sort of going back to our talk about the younger generation's role. The younger generation, the film eventually discovers they're shocked, morally shocked by that, but they eventually accept it as a necessary evil of their current, you know, benefit. And they're just telling the, and then the the whole family is saying, you know, you better be quiet because this is us now or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a memories of murder thing, which is like, we've been through all of these changes. This is what we are. <laughs> We're on the world stage now. Yep. There's, I mean, I, I, I can't say one way or another whether the scene there is real, but I do think there are, there is something about that scene that may suggest it's not exactly real. Like, 
you said the the two parents are in the barn and it seems inescapable like they're already pretty much on fire and we see the the final shot from outside with the barn completely burning uh, without any signs of the doors being opened uh and also you know the the police send a cop to the barn surely the cop must have been found dead well, it says the person who is the target of the hit presumably they've told like that guy and his daughter like get out because someone's come to kill you like someone's going to come looking they're going to be interested in finding out what happened yes yeah so they could i mean i'm not saying the family would be accused with murdering the cop but that would surely launch launch investigation that would might have discovered and then there's the road again which allegedly is starting to happen at the end which would I don't think they ever got to display. Oh no, they burned the bodies. Yeah, oh, that's, so right. that's how and oh, the the murderer is being I see. killed. He's like mistaken as a okay. North Korean spy. I see. Interesting. So everything's like tied up neatly at the end, and it's kind of like the family. That's true. That's true. Okay. Have a moment of peace. That, I think that probably it's still it's still the the I think the 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 burning parents is still a pretty big pill to swallow. But I suppose everything else is tied up. I, I like the the final. The final scene, the final image of the youngest daughter looking at the audience. She's looking at the lodge, then she looks at the audience, and, it, and maybe it makes you think: oh, Has she just dreamed this all up? No, absolutely. That's I, I like. I think I will agree with you that it is the scene is more likely real uh, from a logical perspective. But I, just like in the case of a bittersweet life, I like the idea of that that scene might not be real or, or you know, something about it might not be real. Not necessarily that the younger daughter dreamt the whole thing. I don't, I don't know that I would go as far. I, I think that would be a stretch. But, you know, that final scene is just a, almost, almost cements the allegory and almost like, you know, completely nails down the absurdity of the situation that they were in for the entire 90 minutes of that film. And, you know, that sort of, Presenting them with an impossible situation is kind of like emphasize the uneasiness of the whole thing. And, and you know, perhaps is just enough to remove. It's like, I don't know if you've seen The Great Dictator, when everything um, to up until the final scene is a comedy, and then the, the, final, the, the final scene of the film is just a, a genuine speech from Charlie Chaplin against fascism. And that is sort of an out of character speech that completely removes you out of the film, but also enhances your intellectual faculties so you pay attention to the to the actual content of, of the speech as opposed to being sucked into the story so i'm wondering if not sort of th this brechtian device is also used here where it's something illogical happens that it takes you out of the storage for just a little bit so so you start to think on on a less emotional level or a less entertaining level which movies usually are and to to sort of start thinking into into a more of an intellectual level and to start piecing the two and two together about what it is the movie that is trying to tell you. Again, I'm not saying that's what the film is doing, but I like that idea. I like that that the film might be might be doing that. Considering Kim Ji Woon has a background in theatre, like Bertolt Brecht is one of like the major writers of the film. Uh, th that would make sense. And the film does do several things that kind of bring attention to the form. Like some of the camera movements in the cinematography are very. There's there's a lot of horror like cinematography and style that is used here, yeah. and there's a lot of times where that just broken for you know very abruptly that it that it does kind of in in a subtle way bring attention to the form itself. Yeah, like the the setting itself is brilliant. You have got shadowy hallways, there's a large made of dark wood, and absolutely the wallpapers like a shade of pea soup green, and you've got Dutch angles 
And like you said, it's subverted by comedy. Like the best bit uh, is probably when um, the guy who's fallen off the cliff comes back and bursts into the daughter's rooms. And um, yeah, it starts as a very horror shot, like very much like horror. You, it's it, like something from Halloween, or or or, or Ringo. Like, do you not for like the first time you see? Do you not for a second believe that that might be a ghost? Mm. Yeah, especially the way it's lit. And it's, is it like Steadicam shots going through the uh, location? But um, like uh, you got a Dutch angle on this guy uh, as he's holding, uh, I think it's a shovel, and um, then um, Choi Min Six character bursts in and knocks him out of the door. Totally subverting it. And yeah, yeah. Light, lightning or, and thunder or, as well. Like traditional horror things. Exactly. Or the 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 second the second death, like the couple that committed suicide by drinking cyanide cyanide or something like that. Uh and you know, when when uh Choi Min Sik's character initially discovers and the that guy opened his eyes, that's a very horror movie theme. Yeah. A trope. But what proceeds afterward is nothing, is not, not horror at all. Well, yeah, that, like it eventually devolves into sort of like bathos or just like farcical comedy because it's like, how do we bury these corpses? Okay, bend them in half. We try to stuff them in the hole. Even, even more abruptly within the camera movement themselves, there's sometimes, you know, things that undermine or sort of subvert the horror um, elements of it. Like uh, they have that discussion about their first guests that there's something off about him. And Choi Min-sik comment, or either Choi Min-sik or Song Kang-ho comments that he's just too short. And then when, when the flashback that Song Kang-ho goes to bring him his beer, the camera just ominously pans or, 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 uh, or rolls towards the, the slyly open door, mm. the crack. And then we see at the bottom of the screen, we see the top of this head, <laughs> of this guy's head. And the camera just quickly pans down as though as though it is all of a sudden Song Kang Ho's point of view, and he's just looking at this guy that's way too short. Yeah. So things like that, I, that, that was just a brilliant move from a first-time director. And it's one scene that most people won't notice, but I, I don't know that why it just stuck so so much, because it is, it is this is a guy who is not only a great writing talent, but also understands the convention of cinema very, very, very well and knows how to use them to his advantage. Yeah. And like with that scene, you've got all the shadows, you've got the lightning and thunder in the background, you've got the scary music. And then with that sudden pan down, uh, you've got the music going with it as well. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, speaking of the, a little bit of diversion, but there's a, a lot of American music that I I don't know how they were able to afford. I Cause, it's, Yeah. Licensing American music, especially that Partridge song in the end, <laughs> that was that couldn't have been cheap. And they probably just lanced the music, not the actual performance. So there's probably covers of all those songs that they use. They use some rock songs, some American or British rock songs that I forget. But the most memorable one is the one from the Partridge family. And I don't think that's the original. I think that's just the, the song that is sung by someone else, I would speculate. Okay. But it, it still couldn't have been cheap. And you've got that hip hop track at the start as you as we're yeah. going through the corridors, which is like a countervailing atmosphere to what's going to happen, to what you might expect. Yeah, I don't know how they got away with that. Maybe, maybe they, they were able to get a good deal somehow, somewhere. I don't know. Is it kind of like Hong Kong where... Ah, oh, no, it couldn't be like Hong Kong where they just do whatever they want to the music. I, yeah, I, I don't think so. I'm, sometimes, I'm thinking maybe the... the like, um, you know, sometimes uh, production studios have these like year-long licenses that they are allowed to use certain types of music as much as they want. So maybe that was just something that the company already owned I, that he was able to use. 
I don't know, but it was, I was. This is made with such precision that you can imagine Kim Ji Woon's like got the music playing in his head as he's writing this, and then as he's directing it, it's like, yeah, this would be perfect. Yeah, oh no, I I agree. The music, especially that that final track, is just such a nice way to just end this whole crazy film. But uh, I, I I can imagine like he can't be the only one who says, hey, I want to use that uh, song from Metallica, and some studio exec says, no, you don't. <laughs> it's we can't afford it. it and I know Paltridge Family is probably not Metallica, but it's still a fairly popular group that would have cost quite a bit of money to to license. Although, again, perhaps they got lucky; they were able to somehow. I mean, it's not unheard of for for indie films to be able to use good music because they just are able to get lucky on licensing fees. Yeah. Although I don't know why an American music company would feel generous towards a random Korean production studio, but who knows? I don't know. Maybe the Paltridge Family were going in a dip in popularity at the time. Probably, yeah. I mean, they were very popular in the 70s, but maybe by the 90s, nobody cared about them. <laughs> anyway, so before, I would also like to kind of talk a little bit about the happiness of the Katakuris. You mentioned that you saw that. I also, I didn't mention it initially, but I, I did watch it in preparation for this episode. And you're, you're definitely a fan of Mike more than, than I am. But I didn't hate the film. I didn't hate the happiness of the Katakuris. I did not like it either, though. I seemed to me that it was a fairly... I can appreciate the originality as far as remakes go. It's certainly... Mika definitely made it his own. Although he also kind of didn't because the plots are virtually identical with a, certain superficial changes. Uh, so I'm curious, what did you think about so it? So I saw the happiness of the Katakuris before I saw The Quiet Family. And it was like... Uh, the sci-fi channel was screening a season of Mickey films and I, I liked it at the time and then I watched The Quiet Family and I was like no the Korean original is much better <laughs> um, I what I appreciate that Mickey actually went the correct path of doing a remake which is if you cannot improve on the original you try doing something new uh, I watched it in preparation for this podcast this morning and I, I enjoyed the songs um, the the the, it's like a pain to like family ties and living life. Uh, it's like a grab bag of ideas. So you got like stop motion and murder and musical elements. Um, it doesn't all gel together like uh, the original Quiet Family does. Um, and it does drag on a bit too long. But it's done with such heart that it's hard not to be charmed. So the one, I think the a couple of problems that I had with Amike, and I I do agree that you know that it it's as good of a remade as it could have been as it could have been because like you said he he made it his own he just he he made it different, uh but a couple of things is I think Mika tried too hard to make the family sympathetic perhaps you know he had to make it somewhat different but I don't know that that was the right move and the second thing is I I I'm. I didn't hate the songs by themselves, but I did not like the fact that every 10 minutes the story has to stop, to stop for a song to play. Uh, it just The pacing just was completely thrown off by that, in my opinion. I did not feel, in certain instances, it was better than others, but I, I did not feel the songs were part of the story. I felt like, okay, there's a story happening, and then now we completely stop because the song has to play, and then we continue the story. In some cases, they did a better job for certain songs to integrate them so the story can move forward during the song but i i found it frustrating for most of the time yeah that's what leads to it feeling like a grab bag of ideas yes um but otherwise no i thought it was pretty good i thought i thought they did a pretty good job with you know i, I did like the mix of 
live action with uh, stop motion. Um, he sort of a like you said, he had a, he had that a certain charm, almost almost by by you know a tour de force kind of charm. It's not, I don't know exactly what what role he plays. If if you are able to attach a, a sort of a, a an, an interpretation to the Mika version as opposed to the political underpinnings of the Korean version, he was trying really hard to say something about the meaning of life. I'm not sure what that was, but <laughs> I'm sure he had certain ideas about it. Uh, but again, it was style for style sakes which is what my problem with a lot of Mickey film is but as far as style goes he's definitely one of the best it, even though where there's not necessarily a meaning behind it actually it. reminded me of uh taste of tea which was that was that 97 or was that i think that was around the same time the taste of tea oh i thought i thought that was 2000s, 2000s? yeah it's th- i think they were released around the same time could be wrong. I don't know. Well, the um, happiness of the Katakuris, I think, was two thousand one. Uh, the taste of tea was two thousand four. Okay, yeah, two thousand four, and that was not by Mike. It was by someone else. Yeah, Katsuhito Ishii, um, who has a background yeah. in like uh, advertising, and that was also like another Gonzo uh, crazy film. Yeah, it's um, like it's a family in the countryside. It's focused on family ties and um, enjoying life, but it also has those flights of fantasy with surreal moments in it. Uh, it has animation as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I wonder if this was a mistranslation, but the film was released in 2001, The Happiness of the Katakuris. And, um, and they talk about that uh, fraud, fraud uh, character, Richard something. Oh, yeah. Like the... Who was, who I thought it was a, like a, one of the core differences between the original. I thought it was a pretty funny character. Yeah. Uh, and I could even, t- I mean, I don't speak Japanese. I can even tell that his manner of speaking was completely ridiculous. It was so stilted. Like... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but he talks about when he calls and he has, he calls the... the Shizue. The main uh, Shizue. And he talks about he has that tape of bomb of uh, firearms playing in the background and pretend to be in a war. But he says he's in Iraq, and in two thousand one that would have been Afghanistan, not Iraq. You see, you see what I mean? Like the Iraq war didn't start till the end of two thousand three or something. Yeah, it's like so, embellishment. I wonder. I wonder if Mika was that clairvoyant that he foresaw <laughs> the war in Iraq. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, Iraq was always a, a trouble, like, you know, there's always been tensions uh, with Iraq and America, so perhaps there was something going on at the time, although I don't remember. Well, he's but a spy, Afghanistan so. <laughs> was the, yeah. I, so I'm wondering if that was a mistranslation, the, the, the Japanese said Afghanistan, but they just, the translator just didn't bother and just put Iraq, or if there was something else in Iraq going at the time that I'm not remembering, or if, he, like I said, Mika was that clairvoyant that he foresaw everything that would happen. I, I, I suppose you could see it as the characters embellishing like his credentials saying he's a spy and uh, he's flying here, there and everywhere. So if he says Iraq, that fits in with his character, like telling tall tales and not being very bright. Yeah, but there's, he's pretending that, there's an, that it is an active war zone with all those sound effects that he's fabricating. So that's why, I mean, I, again, you might be right. It could be possible. It's possible that he might just, you know, bullshitting. But um, uh, he did. I got the implication that he was. Imp- I got the sense that he was implying he was in an active war zone, uh, which I don't think it was Iraq at the time. Although it was twenty years ago, but there might be some details that I'm forgetting. I think at the time it was strictly Afghanistan, uh, and you know, Mika got lucky with that. Just he threw a Middle Eastern country randomly in the air, and they just turned out to be important a few years later. Yeah. 
uh, and nothing to do with our discussion. I just thought it was an interesting tidbit that just kind of stuck out to me and said, what, why, why is he talking about Iraq? I, th- I don't know. <laughs> I, well, as uh, Western nations continue to grapple with uh, their bloody histories, uh, we'll eventually look back on the Iraq war and the huge death toll and uh, what, you know, question how it could happen. Yes, and maybe maybe in uh, in history classes they'll, play. they'll show <laughs> yes. the happiness the, they show the happiness of the Katakuris as an example of a film about the Iraq War. Yeah, uh, Richard Curtis, his next documentary will have this will have his character narrating it somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I mean, we talked about uh, the Quiet Family. We talked about the happiness of the Katakuris a little bit. I have ultimately, I didn't, I don't think I explicitly said it, but ultimately, I would agree with you yet that. Um, the Quiet Family is the much better film. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll try to find reviews of the films that we're discussing just to get what the general opinion is. And unfortunately for a lot of these early Asian films, reviews tend to be much, much after the fact. And I was surprised to see a number of people who, like you, had seen The Quiet Family much after The Happiness of the Katakuris, simply because I think um, Mika has probably a, a bigger cachet, you know, internationally. Mm. Especially, you know, in the 2000s. And, and I was surprised at the majority of people who thought that The Quiet Family was inferior to The Happiness of the Katakuris. Uh, that seemed to be sort of a prevailing opinion uh, there, so, which I, I don't agree. But I, I, guess, I guess if you are, if you do like Mika's style, I can see why you would not appreciate The Happiness of the Katakuris, especially if you're not perhaps familiar with its subtext. Yeah, uh, even without the subtext it's still like uh, a brilliantly written and brilliantly acted film like all the character details feed into the story and come in like perfect setups and then payoffs later on and it goes by at a rapid pace and it's full of comedy and horror that it should have more broad appeal i'm like it should be picked up by arrow or criterion and rescued from um obscurity Absolutely, and I think the uh, the copy at, at Prime that I saw was HD, so it, it could probably definitely. There's no re- there is a transfer out there, so I could you could see a Blu-ray release. I I don't see why not. Yeah, Pro- perhaps without some extras. I I've read somewhere that Kim Ki Duke is very uh, Kim Ji Woon particular about ex uh, Kim Ki Duk Kim Ji Woon. Yeah, is very particular about including extras in all his DVDs. So hopefully, maybe there is some behind the scenes shots in this one. And we could, that we could see in a future DVD. Yeah, I read a, a quote uh, from him saying that he feels sorry that all these people who worked on the film don't get a chance to show off their work. So he likes to include all the extras and get everybody involved. Yeah. And it's also kind of a shame that there, after this, there's not that many uh, Song Kang Ho and Choi Min Sik uh, performances, films that they are in together because they're so good together. I think they both got, I think Shiri was the one and that's it. And because they got, I think they both got so big that probably not very many films could afford both of them hmm. together. I don't know. I, mean, I don't think that's true, but uh, but it's perhaps part of it. But they just, I, I felt they were so good together. They were so complimentary with Choi Min Sik's more serious straight man routine and, and Song Kang Ho's more, more funny man. Uh, pairing and I, it was just so great. I, I, I think they're half the reason why this film is so great. Oh yeah, Choi Min Six, fantastic as the love lawn uncle, so sympathetic. Yeah, and he's 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 crush on the daughter of that you know the the half sister of Mister Park who is the evil guy. Uh, the closest the film comes to having a villain, 
is is just so both funny but also kind of kind of bittersweet and romantic at the same time it's poignant because like he should like he's with this family he hasn't been able to start his own and uh he he would like a romance but he just can't reach it absolutely uh yeah and the, the one scene where he's you know he's spying her from one side of the of uh, the <laughs> yeah. pillar and he's just hiding but the other but he doesn't realize that he's just he's as as visible as he was before mm. and uh a song kang ho it's like he's he tones down his performance but he still gets a lot of good comedy from it yeah it's it's a little less and I don't, i'm not saying this in a negative way at all because i I thought his i mentioned that his performance number three is slightly exaggerated over the top but that's per brilliant for that film and i think here he tones it down a little bit he he's it's a little less over the top but that's precisely what this film needs yeah it's an ensemble piece and nobody outshines anybody else they all work together brilliantly Exactly. And they're together. Like in you could argue number three is is also an ensemble piece because it has a lot of big characters, but they're sort of each most of them are kind of the the stars of their own scenes until the very end where they come together. Whereas here they're always together, so they definitely have to balance out the performances against each other. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything else that you think we've left out of the discussion that we should talk about uh the quiet family? No, I think that's it. We kind of usually talk about how the film was received, and unfortunately for a lot of these 90s Korean films, there's not that much that much data. I did read that it did fairly well in the box office, although not that great. It was number six that year, and I think the top for that year, I think it was either Christmas in August or Whispering Corridors. Okay. I think Whispering Corridors was probably a huge, a huge commercial a success and critical success. Actually, I still haven't seen it. I need to see that film. Mm. I, that was the year Alien Resurrection was released as well. Is it? Yeah, that sounded... Okay. <laughs> I was surprised. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, I could see that film doing well in Korea. Well, yeah. The Quiet Family won Best Live Action Film at the 1999 Fanta Festival, Best Director and Best Film at the Malaga International Week of Fantastic Cinema, and it was nominated for Best Film at 1998 Sitges Film Festival. Which are... You know, respectable but relatively small film festivals. Yes, it is, is, is like a specialist. And that's, I think that's another thing with these, uh, a lot of these new blood in Korean cinema. Like we talked about this in number three about, well, we might have mentioned it about, you know, how there's a lot of Western influences. And you could tell that Kim Jong-un had an, uh, had an eye for international appeal. He didn't just make films that would appeal to the domestic audiences. He sought to show his films in as many foreign festivals as he could. Mm. And he would do that throughout his career. And a lot of other uh, Korean filmmakers of his generation also kind of did. They kind of saw the potential of Korean cinema to, to sort of work beyond the domestic barriers. Mm. All right, uh, Jason, thank you very much for a lively discussion of The Quiet Family, the 1998 film by Kim Ji-woon. Uh, that was our episode for this week. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, please please feel free to reach us at our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or through our Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Uh, so we haven't quite decided what exactly we'll do our, uh, for our next episode. Uh, we might have a, a special episode, which we'll certainly announce uh, through social media if we do. Or if we just talk about another film, we'll also make sure to announce that in advance through social media. So it was great chatting with you, Jason. Is there anything you'd like to close with before we end this episode? Yeah, uh, stay tuned to 
the podcast website and Twitter feed and let us know what you think about any of the films you've covered and uh, if we should cover certain films we haven't already watched. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you, if I never thought of this, but yeah, if if the audience has suggestions, we'll be happy to to do those. Why not? Um, so until next, until then, then um, have a great time watching our the films that we talk about, and we'll see all of you in a couple of weeks. I'm sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream. Like all at once, I wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain. Before I go insane, I hold my pillow to my head and spring up in my bed, screaming out the words I dread. I think I love you. I think I love you. This morning, I woke up with this feeling I didn't know how to deal with, and so I just decided to myself, I'd hide it to myself and never talk about it. And did not go and shout it when you walked into the room I think I love you Do you think I have a case? Let me ask you to your face. Do you think-